Chapter Three of *The Boy Scout and Other Stories for Boys* by Richard Harding Davis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three: Gallagher, a Newspaper Story, Part Two. It was not a very large crowd, but it was wonderfully well selected. It ran, in the majority of its component parts, to heavy white coats with pearl buttons. The white coats were shouldered by long blue coats with astrakhan fur trimmings, the wearers of which preserved a clickiness not remarkable when one considers that they believed every one else present to be either a crook or a prize-fighter. There were well-fed, well-groomed clubmen and brokers in the crowd, a politician or two, a popular comedian with his manager, amateur boxers from the athletic clubs, and quiet, closed-mouthed sporting men from every city in the country. Their names, if printed in the papers, would have been as familiar as the types of the papers themselves. And among these men, whose only thought was of the brutal sport to come, was Hade, with Dwyer standing at ease at his shoulder. Hade, white and visibly in deep anxiety, hiding his pale face beneath a cloth travelling cap, and with his chin muffled in a woolen scarf. He had dared to come because he feared his danger from the already suspicious Kepler was less than if he stayed away, and so he was there, hovering restlessly on the border of the crowd, feeling his danger and sick with fear. When Heffelfinger first saw him he started up on his hands and elbows, and made a movement forward as if he would leap down then and there and carry off his prisoner single-handed. "'Lie down!' growled Gallagher. "'An officer of any sort wouldn't live three minutes in that crowd.' The detective drew back slowly and buried himself again in the straw, but never once through the long fight which followed did his eyes leave the person of the murderer. The newspapermen took their places in the foremost row close around the ring, and kept looking at their watches and begging the master of ceremonies to shake it up, do. There was a great deal of betting, and all of the men handled the great rolls of bills they wagered with a flippant recklessness which could only be accounted for in Gallagher's mind by temporary mental derangement. Some one pulled a box out into the ring, and the master of ceremonies mounted it, and pointed out in forcible language that as they were almost all already under bonds to keep the peace, it behooved all to curb their excitement and to maintain a severe silence unless they wanted to bring the police upon them and have themselves sent down for a year or two. Then two very disreputable-looking persons tossed their respective principals' high hats into the ring, and the crowd, recognizing in this relic of the days when brave knights threw down their gauntlets in the lists as only a sign that the fight was about to begin, cheered tumultuously. This was followed by a sudden surging forward, and a mutter of admiration much more flattering than the cheers had been, when the principals followed their hats and, slipping out of their greatcoats, stood forth in all the physical beauty of the perfect brute. Their pink skin was as soft and healthy-looking as a baby's, and glowed in the lights of the lanterns like tinted ivory, 
and underneath this silken covering the great biceps and muscles moved in and out and looked like the coils of a snake around the branch of a tree. Gentlemen and blackguard shouldered each other for a nearer view. The coachmen, whose metal buttons were unpleasantly suggestive of police, put their hands, in the excitement of the moment, on the shoulders of their masters. The perspiration stood out in great drops on the foreheads of the backers, and the newspaper men bit somewhat nervously at the ends of their pencils. And in the stalls the cows munched contentedly at their cuds, and gazed with gentle curiosity at their two fellow-brutes, who stood waiting the signal to fall upon and kill each other, if need be, for the delectation of their brothers. "'Take your places,' commanded the master of ceremonies. In the moment in which the two men faced each other, the crowd became so still that save for the beating of the rain upon the shingled roof and the stamping of a horse in one of the stalls, the place was as silent as a church. "'Time!' shouted the master of ceremonies. The two men sprang into a posture of defense, which was lost as quickly as it was taken, one great arm-shot out like a piston-rod. There was the sound of bare fists beating on naked flesh. There was an exultant indrawn gasp of savage pleasure and relief from the crowd, and the great fight had begun. How the fortunes of war rose and fell, and changed and rechanged that night, is an old story to those who listen to such stories, and those who do not will be glad to be spared the telling of it. It was, they say, one of the bitterest fights between two men that this country has ever known. But all that is of interest here is that after an hour of this desperate, brutal business, the champion ceased to be the favorite. The man whom he had taunted and bullied, and for whom the public had but little sympathy, was proving himself a likely winner, and under his cruel blows, as sharp and clean as those from a cutlass, his opponent was rapidly giving way. The men about the ropes were past all control now. They drowned Kepler's petitions for silence with oaths, and in inarticulate shouts of anger, as if the blows had fallen upon them, and in mad rejoicings. They swept from one end of the ring to the other, with every muscle leaping in unison with those of the men they favored, and when a New York correspondent muttered over his shoulder, that this would be the biggest sporting surprise since the Heenan Sayers fight, Mr. Dwyer nodded his head sympathetically in assent. In the excitement and tumult it is doubtful if any heard the three quickly repeated blows that fell heavily from the outside upon the big doors of the barn. If they did, it was already too late to mend matters, for the door fell, torn from its hinges, and as it fell a captain of police sprang into the light from out of the storm, with his lieutenants and their men crowding close at his shoulder. In the panic and stampede that followed, several of the men stood as helplessly immovable as though they had seen a ghost. Others made a mad rush into the arms of the officers and were beaten back against the ropes of the ring. 
others dived headlong into the stalls among the horses and cattle, and still others shoved the rolls of money they held into the hands of the police and begged like children to be allowed to escape. The instant the door fell and the raid was declared, Heffelfinger slipped over the cross-rails on which he had been lying, hung for an instant by his hands, and then dropped into the center of the fighting mob on the floor. He was out of it in an instant with the agility of a pickpocket, was across the room and at Hade's throat like a dog. The murderer, for the moment, was the calmer man of the two. Here, he panted, hands off now. There's no need for all this violence. There's no great harm in looking at a fight, is there? There's a, a hundred-dollar bill in my right hand. Take it, and let me slip out of this. No one is looking. Here. But the detective only held him the closer. I want you for burglary, he whispered under his breath. You've got to come with me now, and quick. The less fuss you make, the better for both of us. If you don't know who I am, you can feel my badge under my coat here. I've got the authority. It's all regular, and when we're out of this damned row I'll show you the papers." He took one hand from Hade's throat and pulled a pair of handcuffs from his pocket. "'It's a mistake. This is an outrage,' gasped the murderer, white and trembling, but dreadfully alive and desperate for his liberty. "'Let me go, I tell you. Take your hands off of me. Do I look like a burglar, you fool?' I know who you look like, whispered the detective, with his face close to the face of his prisoner. Now, will you go easy as a burglar, or shall I tell these men who you are and what I do want you for? Shall I call out your real name, or not? Shall I tell them? Quick, speak up. Shall I? There was something so exultant, something so unnecessarily savage in the officer's face that the man he held saw that the detective knew him for what he really was, and the hands that had held his throat slipped down around his shoulders, or he would have fallen. The man's eyes opened and closed again, and he swayed weakly backward and forward, and choked as if his throat were dry and burning. Even to such a hardened connoisseur in crime as Gallagher, who stood closely by, drinking it in, there was something so abject in the man's terror that he regarded him with what was almost a touch of pity. "'For God's sake,' Hade begged, "'let me go. Come with me to my room, and I'll give you half the money. I'll, I'll divide with you fairly. We can both get away. There's a fortune for both of us there. We both can get away. You'll be rich for life. Do you understand? For life!' But the detective, to his credit, only shut his lips the tighter. "'That's enough,' he whispered in return. "'That's more than I expected. You've sentenced yourself already. Come.' Two officers in uniform barred their exit at the door, but Heffelfinger smiled easily and showed his badge. "'One of Byrne's men,' he said in explanation, "'came over expressly to take this chap. He's a burglar. Arley Lane, alias Carlton.' I've shown the papers to the captain. It's all regular. I'm just going to get his traps at the hotel and walk him over to the station. I guess we'll push right on to New York tonight. 
the officers nodded and smiled their admiration for the representative of what is perhaps the best detective force in the world and let him pass then heffelfinger turned and spoke to gallegher who still stood as watchful as a dog at his side i'm going to his room to get the bonds and stuff he whispered then i'll march him to the station and take that train i've done my share don't forget yours oh you'll get your money right enough said gallegher and say he added with the appreciative nod of an expert do you know you did it rather well mr dwyer had been writing while the raid was settling down as he had been writing while waiting for the fight to begin now he walked over to where the other correspondents stood in angry conclave the newspaper men had informed the officers who hemmed them in that they represented the principal papers of the country and were expostulating vigorously with the captain who had planned the raid and who declared they were under arrest don't be an ass scott said mr dwyer who was too excited to be polite or politic you know our being here isn't a matter of choice we came here on business as you did and you've no right to hold us if we don't get our stuff on the wire at once protested a new york man we'll be too late for tomorrow's paper and captain scott said he did not care a profanely small amount for tomorrow's paper and that all he knew was that to the station-house the newspaper men would go there they would have a hearing and if the magistrate chose to let them off that was the magistrate's business but that his duty was to take them into custody but then it will be too late don't you understand shouted mr dwyer you've got to let us go now at once i can't do it mr dwyer said the captain and that's all there is to it why haven't i just sent the president of the junior republican club to the patrol wagon the man that put this coat on me and do you think i can let you fellows go after that you were all put under bonds to keep the peace not three days ago and here you're at it fighting like badgers it's worth my place to let one of you off what mr dwyer said next was so uncomplimentary to the gallant captain scott that that overwrought individual seized the sporting editor by the shoulder and shoved him into the hands of two of his men this was more than the distinguished mr dwyer could brook and he excitedly raised his hand in resistance but before he had time to do anything foolish his wrist was gripped by one strong little hand and he was conscious that another was picking the pocket of his greatcoat he slapped his hands to his sides and looking down saw gallegher standing close behind him and holding him by the wrist mr dwyer had forgotten the boy's existence and would have spoken sharply if something in gallegher's innocent eyes had not stopped him gallegher's hand was still in that pocket in which mr dwyer had shoved his notebook filled with what he had written of gallegher's work and hade's final capture and with a running descriptive account of the fight with his eyes fixed on mr dwyer gallegher drew it out and with a quick movement shoved it inside his waistcoat mr dwyer gave a nod of comprehension then glancing at his two guardsmen and finding that they were still interested in the wordy battle of the correspondence with their chief and had seen nothing he stooped and whispered to gallegher 
The forms are locked at twenty minutes to three. If you don't get there by that time, it will be of no use. But if you're on time, you'll beat the town, and the country, too. Gallagher's eyes flashed significantly, and, nodding his head to show he understood, started boldly on a run toward the door. But the officers who guarded it brought him to an abrupt halt, and, much to Mr. Dwyer's astonishment, drew from him what was apparently a torrent of tears. "'Let me go to me father! I want me father!' the boy shrieked hysterically. "'They've rested father! Oh, daddy, daddy! They're going to take you to prison!' "'Who is your father, Sonny?' asked one of the guardians of the gate. "'Kepler's me father!' sobbed Gallagher. "'They're going to lock him up, and I'll never see him no more!' "'Oh, yes, you will,' said the officer good-naturedly. "'He's there in that first patrol wagon. You can run over and say good-night to him, and then you'd better get to bed.' This ain't no place for kids of your age. Thank you, sir, sniffed Gallagher tearfully, as the two officers raised their clubs and let him pass out into the darkness. The yard outside was in a tumult. Horses were stamping and plunging and backing the carriages into one another. Lights were flashing from every window of what had been apparently an uninhabited house, and the voices of the prisoners were still raised in angry expostulation. Three police patrol wagons were moving about the yard, filled with unwilling passengers, who sat or stood, packed together like sheep, and with no protection from the sleet and rain. Gallagher stole off into a dark corner, and watched the scene until his eyesight became familiar with the position of the land. Then, with his eyes fixed fearfully on the swinging light of a lantern with which an officer was searching among the carriages, he groped his way between horses' hoofs and behind the wheels of carriages to the cab which he had himself placed at the furthermost gate. It was still there, and the horse, as he had left it, with his head turned toward the city. Gallagher opened the big gate noiselessly and worked nervously at the hitching strap. The knot was covered with a thin coating of ice, and it was several minutes before he could loosen it. But his teeth finally pulled it apart, and with the reins in his hands he sprang upon the wheel, and as he stood so, a shock of fear ran down his back like an electric current. His breath left him, and he stood immovable, gazing with wide eyes into the darkness. The officer with the lantern had suddenly loomed up from behind a carriage not fifty feet distant, and was standing perfectly still, with his lantern held over his head, peering so directly toward Gallagher that the boy felt that he must see him. Gallagher stood with one foot on the hub of the wheel, and with the other on the box, waiting to spring. It seemed a minute before either of them moved, and then the officer took a step forward and demanded sternly, "'Who is that? What are you doing there?' There was no time for parley then. Gallagher felt that he had been taken in the act, and that his only chance lay in open flight. He leaped up on the box, pulling out the whip as he did so, and with a quick sweep lashed the horse across the head and back. The animal sprang forward with a snort, narrowly clearing the gate-post and plunging off into the darkness. "'Stop!' cried the officer. 
so many of Gallegher's acquaintances among the longshoremen and mill-hands had been challenged in so much the same manner that Gallegher knew what would probably follow if the challenge was disregarded. So he slipped from his seat to the footboard below and ducked his head. The three reports of a pistol, which rang out briskly from behind him, proved that his early training had given him a valuable fund of useful miscellaneous knowledge. "'Don't you be scared,' he said reassuringly to the horse. "'He's firing in the air.' The pistol-shots were answered by the impatient clangor of a patrol-wagon's gong, and glancing over his shoulder, Gallagher saw its red and green lanterns tossing from side to side and looking in the darkness like the side-lights of a yacht plunging forward in a storm. "'I hadn't bargained to race you against no patrol-wagon,' said Gallagher to his animal. "'But if they want a race, we'll give em a tough tussle for it, won't we?' Philadelphia, lying four miles to the south, sent up a faint yellow glow to the sky. It seemed very far away and Gallagher's braggadocio grew cold within him at the loneliness of his adventure and the thought of the long ride before him. It was still bitterly cold. The rain and sleet beat through his clothes and struck his skin with a sharp, chilling touch that set him trembling. Even the thought of the overweighted patrol-wagon probably sticking in the mud some safe distance in the rear failed to cheer him and the excitement that had so far made him callous to the cold died out and left him weaker and nervous. But his horse was chilled with the long standing, and now leaped eagerly forward, only too willing to warm the half-frozen blood in its veins. "'You're a good beast,' said Gallagher plaintively. "'You've got more nerve than me. Don't you go back on me now. Mr. Dwyer says we've got to beat the town.' Gallagher had no idea what time it was, as he rode through the night, but he knew he would be able to find out from a big clock over a manufactory at a point nearly three-quarters of the distance from Kepler's to the goal. He was still in the open country, and driving recklessly, for he knew the best part of his ride must be made outside the city limits. He raced between desolate-looking cornfields with bare stalks and patches of muddy earth rising above the thin covering of snow. Truck farms and brickyards fell behind him on either side. It was very lonely work, and once or twice the dogs ran yelping to the gates and barked after him. Part of his way lay parallel with the railroad tracks, and he drove for some time beside long lines of freight and coal cars as they stood resting for the night. The fantastic Queen Anne suburban stations were dark and deserted, but in one or two of the block towers he could see the operators writing at their desks, and the sight in some way comforted him. Once he thought of stopping to get out the blanket in which he had wrapped himself on the first trip, but he feared to spare the time, and drove on with his teeth chattering and his shoulders shaking with the cold. He welcomed the first solitary row of darkened houses with a faint cheer of recognition. The scattered lamp-posts lightened his spirits, and even the badly paved streets rang under the beats of his horse's feet like music, 
great mills and manufactories, with only a night watchman's light in the lowest of their many stories, began to take the place of the gloomy farmhouses and gaunt trees that had startled him with their grotesque shapes. He had been driving nearly an hour, he calculated, and in that time the rain had changed to a wet snow that fell heavily and clung to whatever it touched. He passed block after block of trim workmen's houses, as still and silent as the sleepers within them, and at last he turned the horse's head into Broad Street, the city's great thoroughfare, that stretches from its one end to the other, and cuts it evenly in two. He was driving noiselessly over the snow and slush in the street, with his thoughts bent only on the clock-face he wished so much to see, when a hoarse voice challenged him from the sidewalk. "'Hey, you! Stop there! Hold up!' said the voice. Gallagher turned his head, and though he saw that the voice came from under a policeman's helmet, his only answer was to hit his horse sharply over the head with his whip and to urge it into a gallop. This, on his part, was followed by a sharp, shrill whistle from the policeman. Another whistle answered it from a street corner one block ahead of him. "'Whoa!' said Gallagher, pulling on the reins. "'There's one too many of them,' he added, in apologetic explanation. The horse stopped and stood, breathing heavily, with great clouds of steam rising from its flanks. "'Why in hell didn't you stop when I told you to?' demanded the voice, now close at the cab's side. "'I didn't hear you,' returned Gallagher sweetly. "'But I heard you whistle, and I heard your partner whistle, and I thought maybe it was me you wanted to speak to, so I just stopped.' "'You heard me well enough. Why aren't your lights lit?' demanded the voice. "'Should I have em lit?' asked Gallagher, bending over and regarding them with sudden interest. You know you should, and if you don't, you've no right to be driving that cab. I don't believe you're the regular driver anyway. Where'd you get it?" "'It ain't my cab, of course,' said Gallagher, with an easy laugh. It's Luke McGovern's. He left it outside Cronin's while he went in to get a drink, and he took too much, and me father told me to drive it round to the stable for him. I'm Cronin's son. McGovern ain't in no condition to drive. You can see yourself how he's been misusing the horse. He puts it up at Bachman's livery stable, and I was just going around there now." Gallagher's knowledge of the local celebrities of the district confused the zealous officer of the peace. He surveyed the boy with a steady stare that would have distressed a less skilful liar. But Gallagher only shrugged his shoulders slightly, as if from the cold, and waited with apparent indifference to what the officer would say next. In reality his heart was beating heavily against his side, and he felt that if he was kept on a strain much longer he would give way and break down. A second snow-covered form emerged suddenly from the shadow of the houses. "'What is it, reader?' it asked. "'Oh, nothing much,' replied the first officer. This kid hasn't any lamps lit, so I called to him to stop, and he didn't do it. So I whistled to you. It's all right, though. He's just taken it round to Bachman's. Go ahead, he added sulkily. Get up, chirped Gallagher. Good night, he added over his shoulder. Gallagher gave a hysterical little gasp of relief as he trotted away from the two policemen, 
and poured bitter maledictions on their heads for two meddling fools as he went. They might as well kill a man as scare him to death, he said, with an attempt to get back to his customary flippancy. But the effort was somewhat pitiful, and he felt guiltily conscious that a salt-warm tear was creeping slowly down his face, and that a lump that would not keep down was rising in his throat. "'Tain't no fair thing for the whole police force to keep worrying at a little boy like me,' he said, in shamefaced apology. "'I'm not doing nothing wrong, and I'm half froze to death, and yet they keep a nagging at me.' It was so cold that when the boy stamped his feet against the footboard to keep them warm, sharp pains shot up through his body, and when he beat his arms about his shoulders, as he had seen real cabmen do, the blood in his fingertips tingled so acutely that he cried aloud with the pain. He had often been up that late before, but he had never felt so sleepy. It was as if someone was pressing a sponge heavy with chloroform near his face, and he could not fight off the drowsiness that lay hold of him. He saw, dimly hanging above his head, a round disk of light that seemed like a great moon, and which he finally guessed to be the clock-face for which he had been on the lookout. He had passed it before he realized this, but the fact stirred him into wakefulness again, and when his cab's wheels slipped round the city hall corner, he remembered to look up at the other big clock-face that keeps awake over the railroad station and measures out the night. He gave a gasp of consternation when he saw that it was half-past two, and that there was but ten minutes left to him. This and the many electric lights and the sight of the familiar pile of buildings startled him into a semi-consciousness of where he was and how great was the necessity for haste. He rose in his seat and called on the horse and urged it into a reckless gallop over the slippery asphalt. He considered nothing else but speed and looking neither to the left nor right, dashed off down Broad Street into Chestnut, where his course lay straight away to the office, now only seven blocks distant. Gallagher never knew how it began, but he was suddenly assaulted by shouts on either side. His horse was thrown back on his haunches, and he found two men in cabman's livery hanging at its head and patting its sides and calling it by name. And the other cabmen, who have their stand at the corner, were swarming about the carriage, all of them talking and swearing at once, and gesticulating wildly with their whips. They said they knew the cab was McGovern's, and they wanted to know where he was and why he wasn't on it. They wanted to know where Gallagher had stolen it, and why he had been such a fool as to drive it into the arms of its owner's friends. They said that it was about time that a cab-driver could get off his box to take a drink without having his cab run away with, and some of them called loudly for a policeman to take the young thief in charge. Gallagher felt as if he had been suddenly dragged into consciousness out of a bad dream, and stood for a second like a half-awakened somnambulist. They had stopped the cab under an electric light and its glare shone coldly down upon the trampled snow and the faces of the men around him. 
Gallagher bent forward and lashed savagely at the horse with his whip. "'Let me go!' he shouted, as he tugged impotently at the reins. "'Let me go, I tell you! I haven't stole no cab, and you've got no right to stop me. I only want to take it to the press office,' he begged. "'They'll send it back to you all right. They'll pay you for the trip. I'm not running away with it. The driver's got the collar. He's rested. And I'm only a-goin' to the press office. Do you hear me?' he cried, his voice rising and breaking in a shriek of passion and disappointment. "'I tell you to let go those reins. Let me go, or I'll kill you. Do you hear me? I'll kill you.' And leaning forward, the boy struck savagely with his long whip at the faces of the men about the horse's head. Someone in the crowd reached up and caught him by the ankles, and with a quick jerk pulled him off the box and threw him onto the street but he was up on his knees in a moment and caught at the man's hand. "'Don't let them stop me, mister,' he cried. "'Please let me go. I didn't steal the cab, sir. So help me, I didn't. I'm telling you the truth. Take me to the press office, and they'll prove it to you. They'll pay you anything you ask them. It's only such a little ways now, and I've come so far, sir. Please don't let them stop me,' he sobbed, clasping the man about the knees. For heaven's sake, mister, let me go!" The managing editor of the press took up the india-rubber speaking-tube at his side and answered, Not yet, to an inquiry the night editor had already put to him five times within the last twenty minutes. Then he snapped the metal top of the tube impatiently and went upstairs. As he passed the door of the local room, he noticed that the reporters had not gone home, but were sitting about on the tables and chairs, waiting. They looked up inquiringly as he passed, and the city editor asked, "'Any news yet?' And the managing editor shook his head. The compositors were standing idle in the composing room, and their foreman was talking with the night editor. "'Well,' said that gentleman tentatively. Well, returned the managing editor, I don't think we can wait, do you? It's a half hour after time now, said the night editor, and we'll miss the suburban trains if we hold the paper back any longer. We can't afford to wait for a purely hypothetical story. The chances are all against the fights having taken place, or this Hayes having been arrested. But if we're beaten on it, suggested the chief. But I don't think that is possible. If there were any story to print, Dwyer would have had it here before now. The managing editor looked steadily down at the floor. Very well, he said slowly. We won't wait any longer. Go ahead, he added, turning to the foreman with a sigh of reluctance. The foreman whirled himself about and began to give his orders but the two editors still looked at each other doubtfully. As they stood so, there came a sudden shout, and the sound of people running to and fro in the repertorial rooms below. There was the tramp of many footsteps on the stairs, and above the confusion they heard the voice of the city editor telling someone to run to Madden and get some brandy quick. No one in the composing room said anything but those compositors who had started to go home began slipping off their overcoats, and every one stood with his eyes fixed on the door. It was kicked open from the outside, 
and in the doorway stood a cab-driver and the city editor, supporting between them a pitiful little figure of a boy, wet and miserable, and with the snow melting on his clothes and running in little pools to the floor. "'Why, it's Gallagher!' said the night editor, in a tone of the keenest disappointment. Gallagher shook himself free from his supporters, and took an unsteady step forward, his fingers fumbling stiffly with the buttons of his waistcoat. "'Mr. Dwyer, sir,' he began faintly, with his eyes fixed fearfully on the managing editor. "'He got arrested, and I couldn't get here no sooner, cause they kept a-stopping me, and they took me cab from under me, but—' He pulled the notebook from his breast, and held it out with its covers damp and limp from the rain. "'But we got Hade, and here's Mr. Dwyer's copy.' And then he asked, with a queer note in his voice, partly of dread and partly of hope, "'Am I in time, sir?' The managing editor took the book and tossed it to the foreman, who ripped out its leaves and dealt them out to his men as rapidly as a gambler deals out cards. Then the managing editor stooped and picked Gallagher up in his arms, and sitting down began to unlace his wet and muddy shoes. Gallagher made a faint effort to resist this degradation of the managerial dignity, but his protest was a very feeble one, and his head fell back heavily on the managing editor's shoulder. To Gallagher the incandescent lights began to whirl about in circles and to burn in different colors. The faces of the reporters kneeling before him and chaffing his hands and feet grew dim and unfamiliar, and the roar and rumble of the great presses in the basement sounded far away like the murmur of the sea. And then the place and the circumstances of it came back to him again sharply and with sudden vividness. Gallagher looked up with a faint smile into the managing editor's face. "'You won't turn me off for running away, will you?' he whispered. The managing editor did not answer immediately. His head was bent, and he was thinking, for some reason or other, of a little boy of his own, at home in bed. And then he said quietly, "'Not this time, Gallagher.' Gallagher's head sank back comfortably on the older man's shoulder, and he smiled comprehensively at the faces of the young men crowded around him. "'You hadn't ought to,' he said, with a touch of his old impudence, "'cause I beat the town.'" End of chapter 3, part 2